The latest on the dramatic situation unfolding in Ukraine. February 21st, 50 years ago, Nixon visited Mao Zedong in Beijing. And 57 years ago, Malcolm X was assassinated. A mass shooting at a protest in Portland. Dante Wright's killer sentenced. Methane plumes seen from space. And much, much more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's February 22nd, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthrough news. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum and Walter Smolarik. Brian Becker is out today. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. A few programming notes before we get started. Brian is out of the country, so we won't have our regular Wednesday show with Richard Wolf. We'll be back Thursday with The Real Story. Walter, let's get started in talking about the situation that's unfolding in Ukraine. That's right, Nicole. I mean, extremely dramatic developments taking place in Ukraine. Yesterday, Russian troops entered the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics. Those are the breakaway republics in eastern Ukraine. That move took place after Russia officially recognized those two entities as independent sovereign states and signed military agreements with them that would authorize the deployment of those forces as peacekeepers. Um, there's still a lot that we don't know. Obviously, this is an extremely fast-moving situation. We don't know exactly what the extent of the Russian military action is or what the sanctions response from the United States and its European allies will be. But if we look back at the last several days, I mean, certainly we saw around the middle of last week that the situation was undergoing a further intensification The authorities in Donetsk and Lugansk announced that they were being attacked by Ukrainian military artillery strikes and mortar strikes. The situation in eastern Ukraine is governed by an international agreement called the Minsk Accord, which was signed at the end of 2014. It established a ceasefire in that area, and there were increasing violations of that ceasefire by Ukrainian authorities. The United States also continued to predict imminent Russian invasion of Ukraine, as they have been doing for quite some time now, and promised to essentially destroy Russia's economy if such a thing came to pass. There were reports, for instance, in the U.S. media that Russian President Vladimir Putin had definitively made the decision to invade Ukraine. That, again, was something that's been stated several times already. Now, since the beginning of this crisis, Russia has consistently denied that it has plans to intervene in Ukraine, to invade Ukraine. But these constant accusations by the United States do have the effect, and they're designed to have the effect, of painting Russia into a corner, essentially, to give it very few options. It can either be perceived to have backed down in the face of the West, that essentially the the United States and NATO and its allies stood Russia down through these threats of crippling sanctions, or they could take military action, which would, of course, be a major risk, a major gamble. So these accusations continued. There was, however, talks to reestablish the ceasefire in eastern Ukraine. There was a meeting, a summit plan between the Russian foreign minister and U.S. Secretary of State Blinken. That was planned for Thursday. There are rumors that 
Potentially, if that meeting went well, it could pave the way for a summit between Biden and Putin. But these accusations and these ceasefire violations continued. And then the situation took a dramatic turn on Monday. The Russian National Security Council was convened. It had a high-profile meeting where all of the members of the Security Council gave their position and, and essentially gave their unanimous support for the recognition of Lugansk and Donetsk as independent states. Putin gave a major televised address providing essentially a historical rationale for Russian intervention in Ukraine. And then several hours later, the announcement was made that Russian soldiers were entering Donetsk and Lugansk. Now, Clearly, the Russian government and President Putin was under a significant amount of internal pressure to intervene and aid the ethnic Russians in Ukraine who have been under relentless attacks since 2014. But of course, the, the other side of this equation is that what Russia was looking for, has been looking for this whole time, fundamentally, are security guarantees from the West, security guarantees specifically that the NATO military alliance will not continue to enlarge itself along Russia's borders, and particularly that Ukraine, the most important European country that borders Russia, would not be admitted into NATO. And that issue of security guarantees still exists. I mean, this move does not resolve the issue of NATO expansion, the overall US and European posture towards Russia, although it does resolve this issue of ethnic Russians, many of whom are also Russian citizens in Donetsk and Lugansk, being essentially under attack. So it remains to be seen quite how the rest of the world will react. There was an emergency United Nations Security Council meeting held on Monday night. India and China gave essentially neutral statements. Many of the countries aligned with the United States gave statements condemning the Russian move to send peacekeepers into Donetsk and Lugansk. There are meetings taking place today to craft a package of sanctions, and there's debate going on among the European powers in the United States about exactly how harsh, how brutal those sanctions will be. But there is a fundamental context, regardless of how all of that shakes out, there is a fundamental context here that's being denied, that's being kept from the people of the United States. And it's crucially important that we return to that context, as we have many times on this show, to point out the fundamental truth of this situation, and that's that NATO is fundamentally the aggressor in this situation. The reason why there is a crisis in Ukraine in the first place, the reason why any of these very dangerous developments that have taken place over the past several days, had an opportunity to break out. The fundamental precondition for that has been moves by NATO, which is led by the United States, to expand right up to Russia's doorstep. This is a long-term project. It began shortly after the end of the Cold War, where even though the United States guaranteed the Gorbachev leadership of the Soviet Union that it would not expand eastwards, that is exactly what it started doing almost exactly after the Soviet Union fell apart. And then in 2014, there is a coup in Ukraine. Up until that point, Ukraine had a government that was following essentially a neutral or non-aligned foreign policy where it sought to balance its relations with Russia and with the European Union without favoring one side over the other. This coup that took place in 2014 involved at its highest level and at its front lines openly neo-Nazi political forces, neo-Nazi paramilitary forces like the right sector, which actually stormed the presidential palace in February 2014, dealing the decisive blow, that were virulently opposed to the Russian population of Ukraine. The ethnically Russian population of Ukraine is about half of the country. They speak Russian, identify politically with Russia. Some are Russian citizens. And it's always been a major fault line historically in Ukrainian politics. The ascension of a viciously anti-Russian government 
to authority in Kiev, which was geopolitically aligned with the European Union and with the United States, and which desired to join NATO, was something that was both unacceptable to the Russian government and unacceptable to many of the Russian-speaking, ethnically Russian people inside of Ukraine. In the Donbass region, the region along the Ukraine-Russia border that includes Donetsk and Lugansk, the 2014 coup gave rise to a separatist movement and an armed struggle that was able to essentially carve out pieces of territory inside the Ukrainian provinces of Donetsk and Lugansk, which they declared to be people's republics, which have now been recognized as such by Russia. The United States and its European allies, having been the principal political backers of the 2014 coup that overthrew the neutral government of Ukraine, completely backed the new Ukrainian authorities in this internal conflict, backed them diplomatically, economically, militarily. And while they didn't take the decisive steps to integrate Ukraine into NATO, that threat was always hanging there. Now, U.S. politicians and quote-unquote diplomats, they've been saying constantly, well, Russia has no reason to fear NATO because NATO is purely a defensive alliance. But Russia, and honestly, most of the rest of the world, knows that that is not true. The whole reason for NATO's existence in the first place has been to prepare to wage war against first the Soviet Union and then Russia. The stated geopolitical strategy of the United States is quote-unquote great power competition, and the two great powers that they see themselves in competition with are China and Russia. The United States withdrew from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty under the Trump administration, same thing with the Open Skies Treaty, two pillars of arms control in Europe. And so this string of hostile, aggressive actions, especially emanating from the 2014 U.S.-backed coup, created a powder keg in eastern Ukraine and Ukraine writ large, and frankly, the entirety of Eastern Europe, that was ripe for an explosion like the one we've seen in the past weeks. Now, like I said, this is an extraordinarily fast-moving situation. We are going to be off tomorrow But our Wednesday video episode of The Socialist Program will return to this topic. We're going to be speaking in depth about a lot of that context that I was mentioning, as well as all of the breaking developments, everything that happens between now and then. There'll be a lot to discuss. So Esther, 50 years ago, 50 years ago yesterday, February 21st, 1972, President at the time, Nixon, visited Mao Zedong in Beijing. This was a huge and very meaningful visit, and the headlines that we're seeing in the media right now are (laughs) funny, but also, I mean, you know, really telling about the visit. One headline, China was a brutal communist menace in 1972. Richard Nixon visited anyway. There was an opinion piece in the New York Times, quote, this is the Russia-China friendship that Nixon feared. There's some really interesting stuff out there, but let's start with what actually happened. Well, as you mentioned, Nicole, we know all manner of corporate media that takes itself seriously is devoting at least some time this week to mark that 50th anniversary of the February 21st, 1972 meeting between the very staunch anti-communist U.S. President Richard Nixon and Mao Zedong, who was a hero of the Chinese Revolution, founder of the People's Republic of China and leader of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, while on the socialist program, there have been much in-depth analysis of this watershed meeting from a lens that is anti-imperialist about China standing up after a century of humiliation by the U.S., Europe, and Japan, and about how Nixon and Kissinger, you know, strategized about this meeting as a way to solidify the catastrophic break that had already happened in the socialist camp between China and the then Soviet Union, and to play these socialist powers against each other. And we've talked about how some of the agreements that would eventually result from this meeting include China getting access to U.S. technology to develop its economy and the U.S. gaining access to the vast Chinese market for exports and for labor at wages much lower than those required to be paid to U.S. workers. 
So the U.S. calculated that China, the most populous country on the earth, could be brought into the fold of capitalist countries and that the Chinese Communist Party could be defeated through any number of regime change strategies used elsewhere. But in particular in China, there were those loyal to the imperial order still living in the former British colony of Hong Kong or those living in Taiwan, where those forces who Mao defeated in the Chinese Revolution had fled. But we know now, of course, that while U.S. corporations and China did receive these economic benefits, the Chinese Communist Party has remained in power and has more recently announced steps to address the income inequality in that country and use more of the income generated by the wealthy and wealthy corporations for the common good. But having said all that, that is not the story you're going to hear this week, even from journalism outlets considering themselves to be objective journalists. So take Sunday's Washington Post story that you mentioned. As you mentioned, the headline said, China was a brutal communist menace in 1972, Richard Nixon visited anyway. So some Washington Post editor who wrote that headline refers to China as a communist menace when any reading of the historical facts tells us that China had been menaced and battered for a century by colonial and imperial forces. China, along with so much of Asia, Africa, and Latin America, which at the same time in 1972 was still freeing itself from the shackles of direct colonialism and occupation by the U.S. And at that very moment, the U.S. was still bombing and murdering the Vietnamese people to uphold what they believed was the rightful order of the world for you know black, brown, and yellow people of the world to be under the thumb of white supremacy. So the writer of that piece, Michael Ruane, starts the story this way to make Mao sound like, you know, some sort of lower human, like, you know, the Vietnamese people that we felt that we had a right to just murder in mass. He says, Chinese dictator Mao Zedong woke up early and got a shave and a haircut for the first time in months. He put on a crisp new suit and new shoes specially made for the occasion. He sat down in an armchair in the study of his home a porcelain spittoon on the floor nearby. And then later, the author says, China had been hostile and closed to the West for 23 years, exporting radical ideology even as it seethed internally. So again, I just wanted to point out that in this writing, in this piece, like many of the pieces that will come out this week, there's no acknowledging of the larger context of the so-called Cold War and the fight for freedom by countries like China and people all around the world also emerging from their centuries of humiliation, not just one century. I think analyzing what's in the corporate media is an incredibly important part of this conversation. And in the article that Esther mentioned, which is in the Washington Post called China was a brutal communist menace, you know, it talks about the visit between Nixon and Mao and talks about Taiwan. And it says, 50 years later, Taiwan remains a flashpoint as the United States has maintained close ties with the island to the anger of the Chinese who insist it's still part of China. But nowhere in the article does it mention the Shanghai communique, which was an agreement between the U.S. and China that they signed acknowledging Taiwan as a part of China. And, you know, nowhere does it really talk about the actual meat of the visit. And so like Esther mentioned, I think it's important, especially in this current context, where the long conversation we just had about Ukraine, about the U.S. versus Russia, essentially, to talk about this pivotal moment 50 years ago when Nixon decided, you know, to fly not only to visit with Mao, but to go to Beijing to visit Mao. Can you just talk a little bit more about the political climate at the time and what the goal of the meeting was? Right. Well, it was a complete shock, a complete shock to the world, including people at the very highest levels of the U.S. government, that Nixon made this move, that he secretly went to China and met with Mao Zedong. It was Nixon and Kissinger. They were really the only people who were in on the plan because it was such a dramatic reorientation of U.S. foreign policy. It was a big gamble. What the United States was hoping to do was to deepen the divide between China and the Soviet Union and to essentially bring China into an anti-Soviet alliance with itself. China and the Soviet Union had long-standing disagreements. The Communist Party of China and the Communist Party of the Soviet Union had long-standing disagreements about what course the world communist movement should take. 
China adopted the position, tragically, the Chinese Communist Party adopted the position that the Soviet Union was just like any other imperialist capitalist power. And, and eventually they would even go on to say that the Soviet Union was a fascist country. And so even though they were taking a very left-wing, radical, revolutionary, anti-imperialist position, they had this other political line that kind of made it permissible to have a tactical alliance with the U.S. against the Soviet Union. And so Nixon, even though China was you know, perhaps the most demonized country in the minds of people in the United States, Nixon made this remarkable decision. He saw an opening to deepen that split, to divide the socialist camp further in two, and to put U.S. imperialism in an advantageous position. And so the sort of mainstream verdict, the verdict in the imperialist establishment, had been that this was like a masterstroke, that this was a genius move that essentially allowed the United States to ultimately win the Cold War. And the coverage, as Esther was pointing out, today is very different. It's very negative about really engaging with China at all. And that's essentially because their long-term strategy with regard to China did not work out. I mean, they thought that by virtue of China integrating into the world capitalist economy, by allowing private property to exist in certain areas of the economy, certain crucially important areas of the economy, essentially the U.S. would be able and the other imperialist powers would be able to instigate a counter-revolution inside of China. And then they would have gotten rid of the Soviet Union and China at the same time, the Chinese Communist Party at the same time. But that clearly did not pan out. And so the the sort of historical memory, the, the judgment of history from the perspective of U.S. imperialism, how wise this move was for Nixon to go to China is shifting as well. It's really actually quite astounding to think that that was the play, that they thought, well, you know, that the political elites, the capitalist elites, Nixon's administration at the time thought, we'll not only split them up, like divide and conquer, but the administration at the time was struggling in Vietnam, in this small country, not to even win a war, but to even survive a war. And their thinking was like, oh, yeah, we can definitely take down like two massive countries with a way bigger population than both of us. I think it's really interesting, too, to look at the political climate at that time compared to now, where when we all watched the Olympics over the last week or two, watching, you know, how often the camera panned to seeing Putin and Xi walking together or, you know, talking about the partnership that has come not necessarily out of having the same worldview. I mean, Russia is very much a capitalist country and China is not a capitalist country. It's a socialist country with, you know, Chinese characteristics, but because they are coming together to essentially stave off U.S. imperialism and Western imperialism. And I want to get y'all's thoughts on this opinion article in the New York Times. This is, to me, it's really the liberal angle against Russia and China because the conservative angle is, you know, just really fear-mongering and racist. Like both of them, you know, Russia and China are out to get you and eat your babies. But some, obviously, some people in the Democratic Party use that line as well. But I think of this as really as the liberal angle, and it's in the opinion piece, the title I already read, this is the Russia-China friendship that Nixon feared. And here's the bit, quote, the truth is that the world has changed. American democracy doesn't look as shiny as it used to. Many people around the world are tired of Westerners telling them what to do. And yet the world is not jumping at the chance to be bossed around by the world's largest surveillance states either. It's not an exaggeration to say that the fate of the world depends on our ability to get the response to this, quote, axis of autocracy, unquote, right. Americans have to stand up for our values and our allies without ending up in a catastrophic war, unquote. And what I hear from that is like, well, sure, like, yeah, we all know that the U.S. isn't doing the greatest thing. We we watched the U.S., at war in Afghanistan for two decades. We watched the U.S., you know, lie about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. You know, yeah, sure. We know that that's the United States isn't doing great. But can you imagine if Russia or China had more power and, you know, just really denigrating those states instead? Exactly. So when a writer like that talks about standing up for our values, what values are they talking about? What values is she talking about? You know, and that kind of brings me to another piece to bring in here because we wanted to also talk about, you know, February 21st as the anniversary of Malcolm X's assassination. And a year before he was assassinated, he was about to take the United States back to the United Nations with that same petition drawn up originally in 1951, charging the U.S. with genocide against Black people. 
against African-American people. So this is the contradiction, you know, as we look back in history and we're looking at it from a materialist lens to really talk about what really happened, not this kind of revisionist version that, you know, CNN or MSNBC or even the Washington Post wants to give. We're really talking about what was happening at that time to black, brown people around the world and their relationship to imperialism and coming out of these centuries of decades or centuries of colonialism. And that includes here in the United States. So we want to, you know, bring those points in not only internationally, but here, right here at home. And I think just to emphasize your point, Esther, to put a finer point on it, it was only a year ago, 56 years after Malcolm X was assassinated, that former New York Police Department officer Raymond Wood, you know, passed away. And it was only on his, after his death that he allowed a letter to be publicized due to his fears of retaliation that he wanted the letter to be publicized after his death, claiming, you know, really writing about what happened and that the NYPD and the FBI conspired to cover up the details of Malcolm X's killing. So, I mean, that really gets to the heart of what you're saying about, you know, what are American values you know, having these federal agencies conspire with local police to assassinate a political leader, like, and a civilian at that. Right. And now his family wants a federal investigation opened up into actually who killed their father since the two men who had been convicted and spent decades in prison behind bars for allegedly killing him, you know, were exonerated. His family wants to know, well, who did kill him? Who killed our father? So, you know, that's going on right now. So this is, it's just the whole coverage of, you know, what are human rights? You know, who is a dictator? What is democracy? All of this is being boiled in this moment, you know, right after the Olympics, when you had these crazy charges of genocide, you know, this word bandied about very loosely by journalists who didn't see any kind of genocide happening in China, but just picking up these talking points by the State Department. And this is how we're treating China, you know, decades after this meeting. And because they are a rival economically, militarily, can be one militarily. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the U.S. is worried. And it's connected to our own diminishing power globally. Yeah, I mean, especially relevant connection when you consider that towards the end of his life, one of the main focuses of Malcolm X's work was to take the United States to the United Nations for their wanton human rights abuses against African-Americans. You know, this hypocrisy has been so clear and blatant for so long. And I think it, it really does say something about the political perspective, the strategic and tactical brilliance of Malcolm X, that he made such an important point and used the spotlight of the United Nations in such an effective way to point out that hypocrisy and to point out the extreme human rights violations that the United States government routinely commits. Right. And to uplift, foster a sense of Pan-Africanism, and not only Pan-Africanism, but the whole idea of a third world unity. And that would be the peoples of Asia, Africa, and Latin America having so much in common, you know, as they struggled to free themselves in that period. Which I think is an incredibly important, the movements of countries in Latin America, of countries in Africa, of countries all around in Asia, you know, banding together for liberation, pushing back against colonialism, and pushing forward towards socialism and toward freedom. Incredibly, incredibly important. Because the Western countries are banded together, and we're watching that you know, for the most part right now in the crisis with Ukraine, we're also seeing that as we watch the so-called freedom convoy in Canada, where, you know, the U.S. press has been pretty friendly, I would say, to the right-wing freedom convoy. And there's even figures, political figures on the left who are claiming that this right-wing freedom convoy is actually something that the progressive sector of America and Canada and that people on the left should be supporting. You know, I think it's a complicated but very important conversation to have. So, Walter, why don't you walk us through, especially now that the Canadian police has now cracked down and they're now, after not doing anything for weeks and weeks and allowing this to go forward, even with, you know, some of the violence that was happening and definitely illegal actions that were happening at protests, they are now clearing out and have cleared out the trucker convoy. So update us on, on what's going on. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is an extremely important thing to really dig into. Police moved in finally after weeks of not doing anything, or in fact, even actively aiding some members of this far-right convoy. But we don't know if that really means that the movement has dispersed. I mean, there's going to be copycat actions starting soon in the United States, allegedly. But this is a crucially important issue because it gets to the heart of some really fundamental political issues. To speak to that confusion that exists in some sectors of the left or of, you know, among pundits who sort of present themselves as being part of the left at the very least, it kind of revolves around this argument that the trucker protests, the convoy is a spontaneous uprising of workers, that this is a grassroots people's movement, and it represents the legitimate grievances of working class people. That is not true. I think that's absolutely not true for many different reasons. One piece of evidence we can look to is, okay, what are the vast majority of truck drivers, workers in the trucking industry doing and saying in Canada? Well, for one thing, they're getting vaccinated. 90% of the 15,000 long-haul truckers represented by the Teamsters Union in Canada are vaccinated. And large majorities of working-class people and all people support vaccine mandates, including mandates that are even stronger than any that are being really even contemplated by the government at this point. The Teamsters Union in Canada put out a statement titled, The Real Enemy for Truckers is COVID-19. He condemned, this is the president of the Teamsters Union in Canada, condemning the despicable display of hate led by the political right, shamefully encouraged by elected conservative politicians, does not reflect the values of Teamsters Canada, nor the vast majority of our members, and in fact has served to delegitimize the real concerns of most truck drivers today. This is the position of the entire Canadian labor movement as expressed by the Canadian Labor Congress. But the social composition of the demonstration is one thing, right? Like, are these workers who are participating in it is it a lot of workers and is it representative of the prevailing consciousness among that sector of the working class? Which again, I think the answer is no. But that still leaves the question of what is the leadership of this movement and what is the political program that this movement is putting forward? Because that's decisive too. I mean, it is possible for a movement composed of working class people to, to raise demands that are reactionary and in fact against the interests of the working class. So the basic demand is that vaccine mandates be abolished, all vaccine mandates be abolished. And that's something that would harm and imperil the lives of working class people. I mean, in Canada, 35,000 people have died, 925,000 people in the United States. We know this is, you know, disproportionately frontline workers, people who are, you know, oftentimes part of the lowest paid sector of the working class who aren't able to work from home, who have had to go into work every day despite the public health emergency. And, you know, there are some societies where mandates are not necessary. Cuba and China, they've been able to vaccinate the vast majority of their population without leaning too heavily on, on mandating it. But that's because there's a healthcare system that's widely trusted in those countries. No such trust exists in the United States. For some people, that's a legitimate distrust, for sure. But we can't ignore the giant role played by the nonstop right-wing conspiratorial agitation that's been going on since the pandemic began, which is, you know, ranges from the most fringe, crazy stuff you'll hear on the internet to things that elected politicians say on right-wing media outlets on a daily basis casting doubt on, you know, the urgency of getting vaccinated, the necessity of wearing masks, you know, just the most basic common sense public health measures that that you can take. That's constantly been called into question by the political right wing and echoed by significant sections of the corporate media. And so no such trust exists. There's really no other tool available other than mandates in some circumstances with the healthcare system that we have right now. A socialist healthcare system would do a much better job, but we don't have a socialist healthcare system. And then when you look at the actual figures, the characters that are part of the trucker protests in Canada, I mean, it's a really 
disgusting lot of people. I mean, organizationally, there's like the People's Party of Canada, which is this newly formed extreme right-wing party that's gaining ground. It's led by the former foreign minister. There's people who want to secede from Canada, the Western regions of Canada, the, you know, quote-unquote, Wexit. There's Benjamin Dichter. He's been going on Tucker Carlson's show a lot, and he's been really a prolific fundraiser for the convoy. He's spoken to meetings of that far-right People's Party, talking about the stench of political Islam, how the Liberal Party of Canada is infested with Islamists in his words. There's other figures like James Bowder, Tamara Litch. There is a guy named Pat King, who's a prominent part of this, you know, far-right milieu. The United We Roll protest is another sort of precursor to this. And Yeah, Walter, the I just wanted to say this real quick. Pat King, who you just mentioned, posted a video online in 2019, 2019, very recently, that said, quote, there's an endgame. It's called depopulation of the Caucasian race or the Anglo-Saxon. And that's what the goal is, to depopulate the Anglo-Saxon race because they're the ones with the strongest bloodlines, unquote. So, Walter, yeah, I mean, really disgusting. Who else, though? And like, what's the rest of the characteristics of this movement? Yeah, good point. I mean, that is the type of person that is really excited, enthusiastic, playing a leading role in the protest. I mean, the politics of it are clearly reactionary. I mean, there's former cops involved, Daniel Bulford. He's effectively the head of security for the convoy. And he was used to be part of the prime minister's security team. I mean, he was part of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, right? The Mounties. There's another guy, Tom Quiggin, who's part of the intelligence apparatus of Canada. And so the leadership of the far-right convoy, the so-called trucker protest, and its political program are both virulently anti-worker, virulently right-wing, and reactionary. Yeah, I think these are really important points. And I want to add just one thing in related to the political nature of this protest, because I think vaccines have been so widely debated in mainstream media and non-mainstream media, just kind of everywhere, newly debated, because obviously we've all had to have all kinds of vaccines like polio and mumps and measles and all of those things that, you know, we've had for decades and longer. But regardless, I want to look at a couple of other political movements in the past for instruction here. In 1968, there was a teacher strike in New York City and the teachers were organized to oppose Black community control of schools in Brooklyn. Like, that's a right-wing strike that progressives aren't going to want to get behind. Like, why would you want to get behind that? And yes, teachers are workers, but just because they're workers doesn't mean that you have to get behind everything that workers do. Even more specifically and relatedly, a movement in the early 70s was in Chile was actually, the movement was truckers specifically, and they, the truckers helped support the CIA coup against Salvador Allende, who was, of course, a socialist president of Chile. So this is a very backward, very right-wing protest. Again, it's possible in this case that those truckers were, were the working class, but if they're supporting a U.S. and CIA-backed coup against a Marxist president, like, that's not a progressive thing. Right, right. The analysis can't just stop there. Now, one other important issue that's been raised is this question about the Emergencies Act in Canada. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act. It's kind of like a declaration of a state of emergency. The police have enhanced powers. They can prohibit protests and other, you know, basically any type of gathering. Under the Emergencies Act, the Prime Minister could, if he wanted to, deploy the actual armed forces, the military of Canada. This was last done in in 1970. It was used as essentially a, a pretext to attack the entire left in Canada on the basis that the military needed to be deployed to suppress a pro-independence armed struggle in Quebec. So this is not necessary. I mean, Trudeau has all the authority in the world that he needs to stop blatantly illegal, you know, mobs from forming essentially and terrorizing people in Ottawa. Uh, the invocation of the Emergencies Act is an anti-democratic power grab, and it's not necessary to deal with this situation. One final point I want to make on this issue, going back to the confusion that exists among some of these online pundits about, oh, well, we need to support this movement, even if it's imperfect, because it's a spontaneous movement. This is a talking point that 
a couple of the people who are, are making this point that progressives and people on the left should be intervening here. Walter, I think this is such an important point to speak to about, like, do we need to go and intervene in this movement and try to somehow win over workers, even though we're deeply opposed to their demands? That's right. Now, absolutely, I think we need to win over these workers, workers who have conservative views. But to do that by joining the movement of the far right, by joining their events and adopting their program, their anti-vaccine, anti-mandate, anti-mask political agenda, I mean, that's surrendering to the right wing. That's not winning workers over from the right wing. What's really needed is to expose the poison that this ideology is, that the type of you know racist, disgusting statements like the one made by Pat King that you read, you know, that that serves the interests of the elite. And so does opposition to public health measures. I mean, that also serves the interests of the elite because that means that they can reopen the economy without any regard for how many lives that costs, how many workers' lives that costs. What we need to do is to, in addition to expose the completely false nature of the right wing's political agenda, to expose how this won't actually address the grave injustices and inequalities that exist in society, we need to put forward an alternative program. Frequently in the movement, you hear the slogan, crush fascism, smash fascism. And of course, we should smash fascism. That's very important by directly confronting with mass action the fascists wherever they go. But we also have to suffocate fascism. We have to deny them the political oxygen, the political breathing space they need to grow by winning people over proactively to socialism, to a basic program that says that everybody has the right to a job, everybody has the right to a decent home, that their kids can go to school at a good school for free, that everyone can go to see a doctor when they get sick, that everyone has the right to high-quality health care, that people should have unions, that there should be a basic guarantee of the fundamentals of life, what people yeah. need to live a dignified life. That's how we can really win people over from this poisonous far-right ideology that's being spread by the quote-unquote trucker protest. Absolutely. That's so interesting, Walter, because what you're describing to me, it sounds so much like the people who say that progressive socialists, we need to join in with the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. You know, I've heard so many conversations and I guess even splits with people online, people who are unfriending people <laughs> because they feel that, you know, if you're progressive, that you should be down, you should be in solidarity with the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. And it occurs to me when I think about this, that sometimes people who are considering themselves progressive, they're not really in an organizing mode. They're not in an organization. They're not really on the day-to-day -day level, really trying to do the work of building socialism. So they see these acts like January 6th or say the trucker protest, and they say, ah, oh, that's evidence of mass action and mass activity. Let's go glom onto that, right? And it seems to me that what you're talking about is one result of people not working with other people organizing on a grassroots level. Because if you're organizing on a grassroots level, you realize that Black Lives Matter, that environmental racism matters, that all those issues you talked about, childcare, healthcare, they're all things that are a part of the working class struggle here that is multiracial and that is often led by the black freedom movement. And to the extent that you want to, you know, glom onto some right wing protest as opposed to working on a grassroots level with a diverse people around you, you're not going to get anywhere. You're just going to wind up in a bad place and you'll wind up, oh, you know, how is it all of a sudden that we have a Hitler or we have a Trump, we have somebody in power now or rising to power and taking power mm -hmm. and, you know, and I'm just kind of like a part of it. <laughs> right. I think, Esther, that's a really, really good point. I mean, imagine if you're somebody who's listening right now and either you, you know, you're thinking this way or you know, or you are talking to people who are thinking this way about who might be confused about what's going on with the trucker convoy. It's really the same base argument for going out and joining the January 6th insurrection and attack on the constitutional processes. 
And the idea that anyone on the left, the idea that anybody who's progressive would go join forces with the right-wing racist fascist militias, the white supremacist militias that were really a big part of organizing and driving the assault on Congress on January 6th. I mean, that should tell you something. Like the idea that anyone would want to be a part of that, like that's really not only outrageous, but really, really disgusting and can show you, I think, really clearly why this is not the right move and why you really do have to analyze the the leadership and the demands of a movement you know, before sort of deciding how to intervene. And what you said, I think about being in an organization, Esther, is such an important part of that because, you know, it's so helpful to have the, you know, experience of people who have been not only in movements for decades and decades, but analyzing and looking at and observing and being a part of and seeing movements for decades and decades to help in that analysis. And if you're on your own, and you're just reacting day to day and it's like, oh, this there's this exciting thing happening in Canada. Well, you're missing the point. And the point is that we can't just react to these individual events. It's incredibly important to analyze why they're happening and to react in the proper and correct way. Right. I want to also recommend, and Walter, maybe you'll mention this at the end of the show, but a lot of the great information that Walter brought out today is in a an article on Liberation News. It's called Why Workers Should Oppose the Far-Right Canadian Trucker Convoy. So I really highly recommend people go to liberationnews.org and read that. We're going to move on to a couple of really important stories that are very related and they're in the police state world and issue. And one of them is that it's gotten very little press coverage. But over the weekend, there was a protest in Portland or there was supposed to be a protest in Portland. It was to honor the life of Amir Locke, who was killed in Minneapolis, and to protest against the fact that he was killed by police. And the protest hadn't even stepped off yet, hadn't even started. It was well before the protest was supposed to start when a shooter came into the protest and killed someone and left five others wounded. I mean, this is a, a mass shooting. And I think one important part of the story is how little press coverage it's gotten. You know, it was very low on the New York Times website when I was looking on Sunday. And this happened on Saturday night. But I, I want to just read what happened. There was a volunteer motorcade group that was setting up a safety plan and rerouting traffic ahead of the march. And as they were working, a man approached a small group of them screaming that they were, quote unquote, violent terrorists and repeatedly calling them a misogynist vulgarity. He said they were the people who were responsible for violence in the city and said, quote, if I see you come past my house, I'll shoot you, unquote. And then moments later, that's when he started shooting. And he shot into the crowd. He, like I said, killed someone and wounded five other people. Just really, really disgusting. And, and really, in his comments, it's so clear what's happening. And it's so clear that it is because that they are protesters. It is because they are standing up and saying, Esther, just as you said, Black Lives Matter, and that they were demanding an end to police brutality. And the reactions have been horrendous. I mean, the Portland mayor, his statement includes sentences like, quote, while many of the details of last night's shooting are unclear, we do know one thing for sure. Our community is dealing with the sadness of another senseless act of gun violence, unquote. This isn't a senseless act of gun violence. This isn't this unknown you know, yes, some of the details are unclear, but it is very obvious what happened. A sexist and racist guy is enraged by the idea that people are protesting and shoots into the crowd and kills people. Just really, really atrocious. And again, the coverage is a lot about how we don't know about the details, but it seems to me like we know some of the details that are that are important here. Exactly. I think another really important story that I just wanted to mention Kim Potter, the police officer in Minneapolis who killed Dante Wright, was sentenced last week, late last week, to two years in prison with a likely release based on laws in that state at 14 months. So, you know, this obviously, a lot of people might have heard about this already and seen this already. I think, you know, there's two important things here. The fact that she was actually prosecuted is a result of the movement. She would not have been prosecuted before the uprising in 2020. That would not have happened. We can see that very clearly by looking at the history of how often people are prosecuted, how often people are even brought up on charges for, as police, for killing people, especially young Black people, which is what happened with Dante Wright. But 
<laughs> that said, that state sentencing guidelines for the highest charge that she had and conviction, which was first-degree manslaughter, they have a presumptive punishment of over seven years in prison and up to 15. So she only got two years, really just a slap on the face. And Dante Wright's father, he talked about afterwards feeling cheated and hurt and said that the judge seemed to care more about Miss Potter, the white female police officer, than about Mr. Wright and his family. And Miss Kim Potter, as I think listeners will be familiar, has long said that she accidentally grabbed her gun instead of her taser. And that's what happened. But of course, the result is that a life was taken, that she took a life. So back to Mr. Wright, he said, quote, they were so tied up into her feelings and what's going on with her that they forgot about my son being killed. We actually thought we were going to get a little justice. And the police officer, Kim Potter, her lawyers asked the judge, by the way, to sentence her just to probation, arguing that she would be a quote unquote walking target in prison. So, I mean, it, you know, there's no knowing what was in the judge's heart, but it definitely sounds to me based on the actual sentence that that is the case that the judge was thinking way more about what the cop was feeling, you know, who was crying on the stand and who was obviously upset than the person who was actually killed. And another proof point of this is when we look at stories like what just happened with the NYPD, which tweeted out having arrested 12 people, which allowed them to close 23 warrants. They arrested 12 people, though, for shoplifting, which is, of course, probably not on the top of our list if we're ranking things that we want to deal with in society. Shoplifting probably isn't the number one thing. But more importantly, the shoplifting, when you look at the photos that the NYPD tweeted out, were the things that were shoplifted, baby formula, diapers, wipes, lotion, shampoo, soap, detergent, over-the-counter medications. They tweeted out, after receiving numerous larceny complaints in the Bronx, officers from the NYPD 44th Precinct recently arrested 12 individuals following an enforcement initiative targeting shoplifters. The arrests led to the closure of 23 warrants and the recovery of $1,800 worth of merchandise. So one additional thing that they, of course, didn't include that was found later by a journalist for the appeal is that two people of the 12 that were arrested, their addresses that were released are listed as homeless shelters. So again, the cops are not going after, and the, you know, the judge in the Kim Potter case are not going after the real criminals. The real criminals are the cops and the judge and the shooter in Portland. Those are the real criminals. Those are the people doing harm to other people. And that's, you know, not what this police state is set up for. Nicole, so much of the, the stories that you're talking about, it just reminds me of how much of the you know, far-right view of crime and justice in the United States is spread by the corporate media. This is a very far-right view of what crime is and what justice is. So you probably don't, like, watch, like, Fox News or whatever, but I don't either. But every now and then I get a little inkling of it. And so this whole narrative about shoplifting and stores being kind of like ransacked or whatever has been a real big story in far-right media since the pandemic especially. And really criminalizing what are crimes of poverty. And some of them aren't necessarily crimes of poverty. You've had what look like very organized like gangs of young people like targeting like luxury high-end stores. But anyway, this instance definitely of what NYPD spent their time and tax dollars on is an example of what winds up making them look ridiculous. And then with Kim Potter, the parents are exactly right and they have every right to be outraged. And what I was going to say when you were talking about the, the shooting of the protester in Portland is that this is just a natural outgrowth of the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse, where basically the judge, the biased judge in that case, has basically given a license to these vigilantes around the country to say that it's okay to target people who are standing up for the rights of people, particularly Black people, not to be shot down in the street. And if you stand up for that right, for really for all of us, you know, regardless of our color, then you're going to be per the same right-wing media, labeled as a terrorist, labeled as someone who doesn't deserve to live because you're out protesting for justice. Yeah, absolutely. Really, really important point. I just want to give one 
COVID update for our listeners. In California, Governor Newsom has now announced that they're moving from a pandemic, which we know we've been in with the coronavirus killing now almost a million people in the United States. We're at 933,000 people who have died from the coronavirus. That the state is going to now move to what he's calling endemic, you know, meaning that we now will just live with the coronavirus. We will start to pull down some of the barriers, some of the protections, some of the things we've put in place to keep people safe. And we'll assume that it's like the flu or a cold, that it's endemic, that it's a part of our population now. And I just wanted to highlight this because specifically in California, California still has almost 200 deaths a day on average and more than 7,000 people hospitalized and more than 13,000 cases a day. That's a seven-day average. I mean, the daily death rate is actually the second highest it's ever been in California, second only to last winter's high crest during the holiday season. I mean, that is an incredibly high number of people to be dying from one particular illness in a state. And now the governor is deciding, well, we're just going to sort of live with this and see what happens and see if how many more people start dying. And nationwide, this is happening in a state with a Democratic Party governor with, you know, a very mixed political climate throughout the state of California, but in some ways a progressive state. You know, it's not a state with a totally Republican-led state legislature. It's not a state with a very deeply right-wing governor. So, you know, if this spreads, this could get extremely dangerous, I think, for the rest of the country as well. Nationwide right now, there's still more than 2,000 deaths a day from the coronavirus per day. And just for comparison, on 9-11, the 9-11 attacks, a day that was totally etched in our collective consciousness, 3,000 people died. 3,000 people. And right now, more than 2,000 deaths per day. I mean, just really outrageous that the California governor has decided to move this way. Esther, we've got just a couple of stories left. You can apparently see massive methane leaks now from space. Right. And the most recent one that's been reported was in Louisiana last month. And a geoanalytics firm called Kairos SAS located a plume of methane stretching 56 miles across multiple parishes in Louisiana. And experts said that this was the most severe concentration of the greenhouse gas spotted by the Sentinel SP or 5P satellite in the U.S. since October. So that tells me that there have been other plumes spotted from space, but this is the first one that I heard about, and it really raised my eyebrow. I am a climate nerd, so, and I do try to follow the news. Well, they said that this plume is the impact of an annual emissions from more than 1,900 U.S. cars. And the other thing that they said is they don't really know who is responsible. That's what I think is just so ridiculous and horrible. So they believe that it likely originated within seven kilometers of gas pipelines owned by Energy Chance for LP, Kinder Morgan, Inc., and Boardwalk Pipelines, and was also near active oil and gas wells. So most of these types of plumes come from fossil fuel businesses, you know, Mm -hmm. gas wells, pipelines, and none of these businesses, corporations, of course, are claiming ownership of this terrible emissions issue. But the fact that it could be seen from space is really alarming. And then looking more into this story, I see that there are actually other plumes that have been detected and they can see how they are definitely connected to oil and gas production here and in other parts of the globe. Really wow. disgusting and and nobody will have to pay for this. You know what I mean? Nobody, as a matter of fact, the the Louisiana agency that would be responsible for detecting this and maybe doing something about it, they didn't even know about it. They were contacted by the reporter from Bloomberg about it. And so they had to like get on the case and find out more about it. So, you know, this just shows that 
what is the real criminality happening. I think that this type of assault on the environment, this rush toward climate catastrophe that mm-hmm. we're in the middle of, you know, making it worse, that should be a crime. Not stealing some diapers from the store because your baby right, needs exactly. them, you know? So this is just another way of looking at what's really happening in society. It's just ridiculous. And one more very short story before we go to our liberation news stories with Walter. Esther, Camila Valeva, I think, is a household name at this point, this incredible Russian figure skater. She's been accused of doping and had a positive drug test a couple of months ago, although she's been cleared in drug tests since then. Can you tell us more about the story? Well, what I can say is that I watched this young skater, Camila Valieva, skate at the Olympics. Tremendous talent and skater. And then I heard a couple of days later her being smeared because a test she took back in December showed some evidence of a banned heart medication in her system. It was a, they say, a test A. And normally you have to have a test B to confirm that. But despite this, and despite that it was well before the Olympics and all her tests since then were clean, this caused a big brouhaha at the Olympics. She was, for a long time, the Russian team was not allowed to take the stand for their awards medal ceremony at the very end, even though she had piled up so many points completing a, I think it's called a quad, some type of jump that no one else had performed before at the Olympics. She was ultimately kind of defeated by this massive propaganda campaign against her, accusing her of doping or people who are in charge of her, putting some type of banned substance into her regimen. And because we don't know what happened, it's really the the press coverage that I want to stress that this was leaked initially by a very small tabloid outlet in Britain, that this became a new talking point to be kind of Russia-phobic at the Olympics and to bash the Russians as this Ukraine crisis is underway. And ultimately to see her fail and to fall down three times in her final routine was really heartbreaking for me as a sports fan because I've seen that happen to other people. I mean, we did it to our own athlete, Simone Biles. The press turned against our own athlete. And Shakari Richardson. Exactly. And not to mention, you know, we didn't really get into all the racist treatment of Miss Gu, who was representing China, even though she was born in, I guess, San Francisco. Just all kinds of anti-China, anti-Russia, racist reporting coming out of the Olympics. And I just really hope that this young skater continues her career because she's a special talent and she has a lot more Olympics and championships in front of her. She's already a champion. And to see her just really crushed by this mentally by this, to me, it was like child abuse. Yeah, really, really horrendous to see. Walter, you're the editor of Liberation News. It's a excellent news site that I mentioned earlier in the show. But as we always do, let's hear from you the top three stories right now that our listeners and supporters should find and and read. Thanks, Nicole. You know, in addition to that PSL statement that we were talking about earlier, why workers should oppose the far-right Canadian trucker convoy. There's a few other articles that I wanted to highlight. One is demand the U.S. Senate pass the Women's Health Protection Act. The Women's Health Protection Act, essentially a bill to legalize abortion at the federal level in the United States, will be voted on by the Senate on February 28th. It's very crucial that there is a massive mobilization across the country to support the passage of this act. And this article has more details about it. Another article that I wanted to highlight is titled, U.S. Turns on Its Puppet Dictator Requests Extradition of Ex-Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez, who is infamous for his involvement in drug trafficking, arms trafficking, corruption, is no longer the president of Honduras. He has been essentially sacrificed by his former backers, the United States, who have now called for his extradition to the U.S. to face those trafficking charges. But 
all of the media coverage, of course, leaves out the fact that Hernandez emerges from a regime, the right-wing National Party regime, that was installed by the United States in the first place as a consequence of the 2009 military coup against elected President Manuel Zelaya. And finally, I want to highlight an article titled Alaskans Call for Expulsion of Fascist State Representative David Eastman. That's no exaggeration. David Eastman has, for instance, shown his admiration for Adolf Hitler. And yet he is a member of the Alaska legislature. You can read about a coalition of organizations coming together to demand his expulsion and much more at liberationnews.org. And you can sign up for a newsletter by clicking the link at the top. Walter, thanks so much. And just again, as a reminder, Brian's out of the country, so we won't have a show on Wednesday, but we will be back on Thursday with The Real Story. You can tune in to Breakthrough News Wednesdays at 7 p.m. to see the video version of that. And as usual, we'll release the audio Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern. Please listen in for that. And so that's the schedule for the rest of the week. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 